Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the Corbett Report podcast. I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and today is the third Monday of the third month of the year 2013, Anno Domini. And that can only mean one thing to those of you who are now tuned into this monthly part of the podcast, and that is it's time for Film Literature in the New World Order, that series where we are exploring various works of literature and cinema and exploring how they connect to all of the information and interesting geopolitics and other things that we are exploring here on the Corbett Report on a regular basis. And on that note, we have, I think, a particular treat lined up for you this month. Uh, For those of you who have already read this month's novel, excellent. Please proceed with the conversation. For those who haven't, I would really suggest you either read the novel or perhaps um, at the very least one of the film adaptations of this novel that we'll be talking about in this conversation. Or, of course, there are audiobooks and many other ways that you can get this, uh, this book besides But uh, just to make sure that we are all on the same page, why don't I just introduce the novel? We are talking today about The Secret Agent, a novel that was published by Joseph Conrad in 1907. Joseph Conrad being, of course, a Polish uh, emigre to to England who, in fact, did not even speak English until he was in his 20s. I believe English was his fifth language, and yet he is known as one of the great uh, novelists in the English language. And... I must admit, I have always uh, found him to be an exceptionally in, uh, a beautiful writer, and I have ver- marveled at his prose in works such as Lord Jim, which I would hi- highly recommend to those who are similarly literarily inclined. But uh, today we're concentrating specifically on The Secret Agent, which is certainly a novel which swims around many of the subjects that we discuss here on The Corbett Report, specifically the the idea of false flag terrorism, the idea of agent, agent provocateurs, and, uh, and anarchism itself, the philosophy of anarchism, all very much uh, key parts of this story. And um, let me just attempt a broad summary of the story. Basically, the plot surrounds uh, Mr. Adolf Verloc, who is a secret agent of sorts, an agent provocateur who has been hired by a foreign embassy that is implied to be the Russian embassy uh, to keep tabs on anarchists and communists and their plottings in London and on the continent generally uh, in the late 19th century at the, at, in the Victorian era. And at, as a new first secretary comes into the embassy, uh, he attempts to provoke uh, Mr. Verloc into provoking some sort of uh, terrorist atrocity from the anarchists that would allow the London police the excuse to clamp down on the anarchists. And that is basically more or less what starts the plot into play. And from there, an interesting series of events unfolds. I would love to just sit here and monologue about this all night, but uh, actually, tonight we are joined on the line by our good old friend Tom Secker of InvestigatingTheTerror.com. And I'm sure you will probably be familiar with Tom from our previous conversations, but um, if you're not, please go back and listen to some of our archives. Check out his website. He is just a a wealth of knowledge on the subject of uh, terrorism, false flag terrorism, the history of terrorism, and of course also on the predictive program aspects of the way this plays into our current society. So, Tom, it's great to have you here today. Thank you again for joining us. Thanks for having me on again, James. Well, this is a book which um, which I must admit, I, I believe it was one of our previous conversations on 7-7 that reminded me of the existence of this book. And I do recall that at the beginning of the Corbett Report, uh, way back in the early days, I, I had 
bought this book simply because I liked Joseph Conrad. I don't think it was anything related to the, the, the subject matter, but I abandoned the book halfway through reading it. And once we had that conversation about 7-7 and how that kind of relates to this book and some of the adaptations of this book, I went uh, back to reread it and saw some of the very interesting ways that this nexus is into our current paradigm and, and a lot of the things that we're talking about. So thank you for however indirectly prompting me to um, once again check into this book and to actually finish reading it. And uh, and on that note, of course, uh, you have uh, read this book. You also have screened a Hitchcock movie that has been based on this book, which I myself have not done. But let's let's start unpacking some of the uh, the interesting plots, twists, turns, and underlying themes of this work and uh, and some of the ideas that have spawned from it. And I don't know where you'd like to get into that conversation, but why don't I shut up and give you a chance to say something? <laughs> And uh, no, it's 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 all right. You're doing perfectly fine. Um, well, I mean, you've read this book more recently than I have. So, in terms of the exact order of events in it, and of course, the order of events is not chronological. So, it's it's interesting as a as a plot in that sense. But in terms of outlining that, you'd do a better job than I will. However, the whole thing, the whole story, uh, is based on very real events that happened in the 1890s. Um, where you did have this this very real anarchist and communist and workers trade unionist movement, all of these different movements kind of uh, growing up in not just Western Europe but all the way across to Russia and also to some extent in North America as well um, and these were at least perceived as a threat to the established order. Um, certainly, the Russians were very, very concerned about this. they had this kind of anarchist nihilist terrorist group Narodnaya Volya which means the people's will so it kind of has that Rousseauian thing going on in the background uh, and they were actually to be fair an extremely kind of uh, courageous, that's the wrong word daring terrorist group they accomplished some astonishing attacks quite sort of outlandish things for a terrorist group to be able to do and it has emerged over time, of course, that this group, like most radical groups that we, we've discussed, was very heavily infiltrated by spies. And not just spies keeping tabs on people, but also active secret agents, you know, agent provocateurs or agents of influence of various kinds. Um, and this was also going on, well, this was going on in Russia, this was going on across Europe, it was also going on in Britain. Um, over here we had the special branch who... This is before the days of MI5, but they were the kind of counter-terrorist spies of the day. Um, and they infiltrated the London anarchist, anarchist scene. Um, one former special branch officer who essentially wrote a whistleblowing memoir of all of this that was published in a newspaper in the 1890s estimated that as many as one in three people... Um, in that sort of passed through the autonomy club, the hub for anarchists in London, uh, as many as one in three of them was some kind of informer or agent provocateur. So you're talking about it happening on a massive, massive scale. Um, the specific incident that is kind of the climax, the culmination of the book, this explosion in uh, the park near Greenwich Observatory, um, that also did actually happen. That's based on a real explosion in Greenwich Park uh, near the observatory in February 1894, carried out, or it seems carried out by this French, young French anarchist called Marshal Bourdin, 
um, who was very much part of this whole scene, uh, exactly why he was carrying this bomb and what he was trying to accomplish with it isn't clear. But the reason why it became such a kind of uh, horrific and memorable and significant and discussed event um, is because the guy managed to kill himself in the process of carrying this bomb or trying to set off this bomb or whatever it was that he was trying to do. Um, so it was quite horrible. I mean, the guy lived for about 25 minutes, maybe half an hour after the explosion. He was carried to a nearby hospital and died uh, after having just sort of sat there saying he, he was cold and asking to be taken home. And people tried to sort of ask him, you know, what happened? What were you doing? What were you trying to do? And he never answered. Um, it doesn't appear that he was a suicide bomber in the kind of absolute sense in that he was trying to die. Uh, he had quite a lot of money in his pockets. He had gold coins in his pockets, for example. He left no suicide note. He had a, a wife who he never mentioned anything to about planning to kill himself. No one knew, who knew him thought he was planning to kill himself. Um, there was this huge raid, police raid, on the Autonomy Club, I think the day after the explosion. They arrested a whole bunch of people, but no one else was charged in connection with this explosion. The, the investigation basically stalled. So, <laughs> kind of like 7-7, in the vacuum created by this failed investigation, um, lots of conspiracy theories sort of sprung to the fore and kind of filled up that space. Um, and they range from, well, everything from Bordan himself being some kind of police spy to certainly his brother-in-law, H.B. Samuels, was an informer for, for Special Branch. And there's a lot of suggestion that he manipulated Bordan in some way into carrying out this bombing. And either he tricked him or double-crossed him or something went horribly wrong and somehow Bordan ends up dead. And that's the particular kind of theory that Joseph Conrad picks up on in The Secret Agent. That is sort of, it's, it's implied in places, uh, is that's, essentially that's the, the through narrative that, that he's, the, the, the conspiracy theory, if you like, that he's picking up on and fictionalizing in the book. That's right. And and on that very note, uh, we have, for example, the uh, the Mr. Vladimir at the embassy who sets Mr. Verloc up for this type of outrage to try to uh, foster this type of outrage, which ultimately ends up in that explosion. We see that his his uh, motivation in this is quite tra quite a specific and tr quite transparent. Um, I'm not sure if giving page numbers will really help because I'm sure everyone is reading from different editions of the book. But at least on my page 31, you have Mr. <laughs> Vladimir explaining to Mr. Verloc um, that what what is needed is a series of outrages, not only planned here. That would not do. They would not mind. Your friends could set half the continent on fire without influencing the public opinion here in favor of a universal repressive legislation. They will not look outside their backyard here. And of course, the implication is that here is a, a, literally a foreign power sitting there with one of their agent provocateurs that has infiltrated these groups to try to bring about an outrage specifically in order to bring about the clampdown, which of course is exactly, exactly what we've been talking about in this false flag terrorism paradigm and the uh, the various incidents that have, have fed into this. But the incident you're talking about specifically is extremely interesting because as we were talking about in one of our previous 7-7 conversations, that that whole idea of someone unwittingly or unknowingly or perhaps um, by accident 
being set up to 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 actually set off a bomb and and it going off at an unexpected time this becomes not only an idea that is uh something that's per- that's presented as a possibility in something like the 77 bombing where of course there is uh there are uh, theories that the the bombers themselves had were were unaware that they were carrying bombs or were um, were trying to test security but it it ended up going live or there are many different variations of that but this idea has in fact been picked up and fictionalized again and again since Joseph Conrad's original publication. And one of the times in which this has been reimagined has been in an Alfred Hitchcock film that was actually based on this. And I understand you have seen this film, so perhaps you can tell us a little bit about that and the twist that it puts on this whole story. Yeah, uh, so it's this 1936 film uh, by Hitchcock called Sabotage, not to be confused with his other 1936 film, which is called Secret Agent. Um, In the film... It's essentially the same story that Conrad tells, uh, that there is some kind of foreign spy working through the embassies in London who gives an order to a agent of theirs that they have to carry out some kind of sabotage outrage. That they, uh, The film sort of starts initially with an explosion at a, I think, sort of some kind of electrical generator and the power goes out. So a rather classic sabotage where no one's actually hurt, but it just causes, you know, lots of confusion and lots of disruption. Um, and then we see this agent being met by the, the embassy guy being told, no, we need something sort of more than this. We need something more horrific than this. Um, it's never really explained quite who this person is working for or what their motivation is. It's not as explicit as in the Conrad book that this is some kind of, if you like, a a sort of strategy of tension thing or a P2OG thing where it's all about causing an outrage in order to then create the reaction that your, your overall, your, your seeking that your overall aim is seeking. Um, but yeah, similar sort of thing that you have this central character who I think is still called Verloc. Um, his, he then tricks his sort of, if you like, mentally feeble brother-in-law um, into carrying this bomb. And the bomb is supposed to be going to a tube station. Um, and the kid is supposed to sort of deliver this film canister carrying this bomb to the tube station by a particular time. And the kid is just completely tricked. He's told, you know, someone's going to pick it up at the other end, but it's got to be there on time so that guy can pick it up. Uh, in reality, it has a bomb inside it on a timer. The kid sort of dawdles and gets distracted as he's going across London towards this tube station. He ends up catching a bus. Uh, so this is all rather reminiscent of the official story of 7-7. Um, <clears throat> and the, guy, the kid's just sat on this bus and you get this classic kind of Hitchcock tension sequence where there's the countdown on a clock and you can see it's getting closer and closer to the time that the kid was told he has to get this, this film canister there for because we all know that there's a bomb inside. Um, and then, obviously, the bomb explodes, the bus is destroyed, everyone is killed, and ultimately, in the end, it has the same kind of ending where the Verloc character's wife finds out that her brother, Verloc's brother-in-law, has um, been killed in this explosion and therefore she realises essentially what's been going on and she stabs him to death. It's the same ending in both. Now, the Hitchcock film was actually distributed, I think, in a slightly different edit with a different name where it's the whole thing is sort of told as this woman's struggle with this rogue agent husband. Um, But the edit that I've seen 
under the name Sabotage is very much a, a the same sort of story of secret agents and, and terror and this sort of bungled bombing that ends up with this kid ending up dead. So, yeah, the tw- I suppose the twist is that it all, all takes place on a bus, that the explosion is taking place on a bus, which is something that was then reflected in reality in... Uh, 1996, 60 years after the film comes out, when there is a, an explosion on a London bus, um, the only person who was killed in the explosion is the guy that they think was carrying the bomb. And the suggestion is it went off ahead of time, that he was actually supposed to be bombing something else. But of course, the investigation went nowhere just like the Marshall Bordan investigation went nowhere. No one actually found out what the truth is behind that. So it leaves us with all these possibilities of, did he even know he was carrying a bomb? Or was he given a bomb that he was told was on a timer, but when he pressed the switch to start the timer, it actually went off? Or all of these different sorts of ideas. And then these ideas formed the basis of a whole series of fictional uh, modern-day fictional depictions of these kinds of incidents in series like Spooks and in the film Dirty War and all these other films and uh, TV shows that predicted 7-7 in in one respect or another. So you have this kind of arc of real life with Marshall Bourdain then being imitated by Joseph Conrad, then being sort of twisted around by Hitchcock and in another film adaptation that I haven't seen. Um then being reflected in real life in the 1996 bus bombing in Oldwich in London, then being sort of re-fictionalized in Spooks and these other shows, and then you get 7-7. That to me sounds like a meme. It sounds like the idea is in fact uh, it's taking on a life of its own perhaps and, and getting twists with each new iteration but still maintaining that same that same kernel, which is, I mean, it's fascinating. And the last time that we talked about this, just generally speaking, talking about predictive programming and how this fits in, we came to that sort of impasse of what to make of this. Is this something that has been deliberately put in somehow via the, the programming to get people to to go along this line? Has this Is this uh, just an idea which is asserting itself culturally and, and phenomenally? How do we actually make sense of this? And I don't think we really reached a definitive conclusion last time. Have you uh, made any progress with your thinking on this matter? Well, I've made some progress in terms of progress, in terms of... Uh, where else we can go for information on this to try and figure out whether this is a kind of manipulated phenomenon, something that's being done by agents of covert influence, whether we're talking MI5 or whether we're talking something more like the Tavistock Institute, doesn't particularly matter. Um, but something like that, where this is uh, some, there is some kind of agenda behind this, there is some kind of reason behind this, or whether or not this is, or whether this is some kind of. Uh, natural cycle or or strange recurring meme pattern phenomenon and I don't really know how we would describe it Um, but I've been particularly looking into just more broadly this relationship between the intelligence agencies uh, and culture producers and authors, filmmakers sometimes entire production companies Um, and that's what my my new website, my spy culture website is, is all about and I've got a lot of stuff that I've been accumulating over the last year or more since I made my second 7-7 film uh, that I'm gradually kind of working through and trying to 
not just make sense of for my own sake, but make sense of in a way that I can, you know, upload this and put some comments on it and get people to kind of understand where I'm going with this and what all this kind of adds up to and what it all might mean. In terms of the specific story that we're talking about, I mean, the, the strange thing about this whole Marshall Bourdain thing uh, is that or the particularly strange thing for me is that we had these two different whistleblowing accounts from special branch officers, from people who were actually in special branch at the time of this explosion and the time of this investigation, offering two wildly different accounts uh, based on what their sources and their informants and spies had told them. Um, the first one is Patrick McIntyre. His, uh, his whistleblowing memoir is published in 1895. Um, he says that Bordan was simply delivering a bomb, that he'd been given this money to acquire or build a bomb for a couple of Frenchmen or at least agents from overseas who were going back to France after he'd delivered this bomb to them and that something had gone horribly wrong and somehow this bomb had gone off while he was in the process of transporting it to where he was supposed to deliver it to them. And so that explains why he had this money in his pockets, that it certainly wasn't a suicide even though his inquest decided that it was. Um, and that the whole thing was just a sort of horrible screw-up. Um, then there is, in the same year, actually, that Conrad published The Secret Agent, I think it was, there was another special branch memoir published in 1907 or so by a guy called John Walsh. And he said, quite different version of the story, he said that Bourdain was uh, a sort of active member at the Autonomy Club and that one night shortly before this explosion he'd been particularly riled up and they'd been having some kind of argument between the, the different people there and someone had accused him of being Bordan, of being a spy, of being, you know, working for Special Branch or whoever. And he was determined to prove that this wasn't the case and that he was a bona fide anarchist and that, you know, he... he, he really believed in what he was saying and so that he'd set out to carry out some sort of bombing to, to prove this and again that something had gone wrong and he'd essentially blown himself up by accident um <clears throat> so i find it interesting that even though i think these whistleblowing accounts are authentic i don't think they're kind of disinformation it's it's interesting that they got two quite wildly different stories about what was the background to this and why this explosion happened. Um, and it kind of, assuming all that is true, it would kind of prove that it's not necessarily a, a straightforward science, this whole infiltrating radical movements and provoking them to do things, that it sometimes you don't actually really know what's going on and what some of the people that you're watching are really up to. But then the whole thing is a mystery, so... I'm not necessarily going with that conclusion. I'm just saying if those accounts are authentic and they're not disinformation of some kind, that's what it would demonstrate is that they, they weren't perfectly doing this. That is interesting because in so many ways that plays directly into the whole 
idea of literary modernism and the idea of these events that take place that seem inexplicable and irrational, and there are many different ways and different standpoints from which we can look at them, and uh, the attempt to try to put that into words is one of the central concerns of literary modernism, I would say, and um, and Conrad as being sort of a for forerunner of that in the English language, at any rate, is he, uh, in, in, in this, for example, has been called by some literary critics as the uh, the twentieth century novel par excellence um, because of the the types of themes and ideas that it deals with, and sitting there on the cusp of that changeover from Victorian society into into a more modern era, and uh, and it's interesting to me that this. Uh, the way that this uh, this novel has entered into the cultural milieu is uh, problematic at best. A- again, it shows an incomplete understanding on the part of the people who have uh, just sort of internalized the main ideas of the, the novel without really bothering to get under the surface. And I say this advisedly because there's an, a fascinating article from September 2001 that was published on Slate, uh, Slate.com, I, a.k.a. Uh, Mini Wapo. And they had a, an article called Chasing After Conrad's Secret Agent, in which they were talking about the uh, number of times that Joseph Conrad's secret agent was being mentioned in the media in the direct aftermath of 9-11. And they were noting that it was one of the three most cited literary works at the time in, in the American media. And uh, this is a fascinating article because it goes to show that there were a lot of people writing about the secret agent at the time of 9-11 and talking about how prophetic it was as this insight into a terrorist world, etc. But uh, almost everyone who was writing about it got the main point and the main thrust of the story exactly wrong. So just reading a little bit from that article... um, Quote, it says, the, the culprits are an agent provocateur who has infiltrated the anarchist ranks and his half-witted brother-in-law. The mastermind of the plot isn't an anarchist either. He's a Russian diplomat frustrated with the refusal of the London police to arrest the anarchists. In short, a foreign state sponsors an act of terrorism in order to provoke a crackdown on terrorists. The incident has no relation whatsoever to resentiment. Resentiment. Uh, Conrad, though no fan of anarchists, was equally skeptical of the governments that demonize them and of ju- journalists like those at the National Review, citing one of the post-9/11 articles, who are quick to issue jingoistic judgments about complicated events. Indeed, the Greenwich Observatory not only never excites the fear and wrath of those who feel themselves shortchanged. It is so ludicrous a target that the agent charged with carrying out its bombing is afraid to involve any actual anarchists in the plot for feel for fear they'll realize he's a fraud. So I, I, I think this point gets lost when people start to translate this into the greater cultural milieu. They start to elide over the fact that not only is this not an anarchist bombing at all, it's, a, it's completely an agent provocateur, uh, pr- provocateur event that has nothing to do with, with anarchism or the philosophy or anything of that, but also that, uh, that as this points out, uh, the, the whole idea of bombing the observatory because it would be an outrage to the public and their sense of decency and science and all of this is is a ridiculous idea. I mean, it's it's truly laughable on its face that was come up by some Russian diplomat who's clearly completely out of tr- touch with what he's talking about. And that's part of the joke of the novel itself. A, a, a cruel, a sick joke, of course, but still the joke is that really this entire plot is far-fetched from top to finish, to top to bottom, start to finish. And I think that's something that, that a lot of people will overlook because they will only see this as, oh, it's terrorism, it's the terrorists, threat and how how does the police react with this and and that's just sort of the way that this is simplified or dumbed down and i think it's interesting to see how 
just as in the real example where it's not at all clear what was happening there and there are different conflicting uh, ideas of it coming from different sides. Even in this fictional example, which should be much more straightforward, there's still people who consistently get the main ideas that even Conrad was trying to put forward wrong. It really does beg the question of how we ever sort through anything of this, even seemingly straightforward or simplistic historical narratives to come up with our shared or collective understanding of an event. Um, well, yeah, I mean, it certainly does beg that question. And, and you're dead right that this is, I mean, Conrad is the, if not the, 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 the forerunner to modernism. He's kind of the, the creator in, in many ways of literary modernism. Um, and I'm sure it is the confusion and the conflicting theories and, and the sort of all the suspicion and speculation around the Bordan uh, explosion in 1894 that is partly what interested him in this. Um and the fact that he always, I mean, and correct me if I'm wrong about this, he never actually d- depicts the explosion itself in the book. That you are correct. That it is never actually, it's only described secondhand. Exactly. And that is what we have from this. We don't have anyone who has actually stood in the park watching Bordan when this happened. Um, I mean, maybe there was, but uh, we don't have any account from them. All we have is accounts that seem to have come from informers. Uh, through special branch detectives so we're at least one stage if not two stages removed from this event and that's kind of uh, I think one of the things that he's driving at in this um, in this book is you're never a hundred percent sure exactly what does happen uh, in that explosion that's exactly but right because if you if you reflect back to that even Verloc himself has no idea really he had turned away and was walking away by that point he only heard the explosion and started to run away after he had heard it but he has he doesn't even have any idea what what ultimately happened no no um, and he's right at the center of the plot so if he isn't entirely sure you have this kind of uh, the inevitable uncertainty of of, of spook theater you know that because everything is a uh, a sort of a double cross and a double bluff and a enigma wrapped in a mystery wrapped in a riddle that even the people themselves who are involved in these things can still be uncertain so it's not surprising that we end up uncertain i mean you ask it does beg the question how do we sift through all this and and essentially make any sense of it i suppose one of the things is that we've got to sooner or later you've got to accept that uncertainty is going to happen if you like that's the wrong way of putting it (laughs) but if you know what i mean that sometimes you just you can't know absolutely what happened in in a particular historical event i can't tell you having read everything that i can find on the marshall bordan story i can't tell you what happened there um and i don't think if i extended this and went to every archive that there is on this event and read all their papers and all of that that i would necessarily get any answers um, I suppose what's important is the response to that explosion. And it is, in many respects, it is much as uh, Conrad was, was illustrating in The Secret Agent, that it did result in, if not exactly a crackdown on the anarchists specifically, it certainly helped advance the formalizing of the security state. At that point, like I mentioned, we only had the police special branch who were the spies, the counter-terrorist spies. But within a couple of years of Conrad writing The Secret Agent, and this was something that had been in the works for a while, we got the Secret Service Bureau, 
which then became MI5 and MI6. So it's not as quite as clear cut as the the but as you mentioned the rather ludicrous plot of oh yes we'll we'll blow up the observatory and somehow this will cause a, a Britain wide crackdown on the anarchist movement. Um, that that plot is absurd, but the logic behind it is sound. Um, in that that you know that is effective. That kind of provocation is effective. Um, it isn't quite as straightforward as that in terms of what happened in real history, but that is ultimately the dynamic that's at play. And so I suppose um, <clears throat> we can't be certain about exactly what happened with Marshal Borda, and we, I think we can be relatively certain that this was part of a historical dynamic that was heading in a particular direction, that had a particular trajectory. I, I, I certainly see what you're saying there. I agree with that completely. Let's, for a moment, let's just focus on Conrad's presentation of, of anarchism because it might be jarring for people who are coming at anarchism from the, the modern proponents of this in, in the North American context, for example, looking at, at people like Stefan Molyneux and Larkin Rose and others who have been on this podcast, that um, it has become something of a truism among among that expression of anarchism that one of the principles of this is the uh, the uh, uh, principle that, that that no one should aggress on another, that no one should initiate violence or force. And yet, of course, contrary to that, uh, anarchism has historically long been associated with bearded Russian bomb throwers. And I think that's basically the type of portrayal that we get in Conrad here. And um, there's some more or less ludicrous examples of that. But perhaps I think the most interesting and the most, I think, I, I imagine the most sincere attempt on Conrad's part to portray someone who is of this mindset was the uh, the, the professor and he um, he gives the professor almost a kind of I would I would say almost a Nietzschean Ubermensch type philosophy that borders on a dysgenical type idea that that everyone else who's not worthy of 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 being strong and being uh, uh, being a, a great example of of uh, strength and and heroism like himself needs to perish and we get some scenes where some of this is portrayed for example when he's uh, walking around in in London with his with his bomb in. Wired into his uh, his coat so that it could go at any time if he needs to, and he's looking at the the people swarming around, and he said they swarmed numerous like locusts, industrious like ants, thoughtless like a natural force, pushing on blind and orderly and absorbed, impervious to sentiment, to logic, to terror too, perhaps. That was the form of doubt he feared most, impervious to fear. Often while walking abroad, when he happened also to come out of himself, he had such moments of dreadful and sane mistrust of mankind. What if nothing could move them? Such moments come to all men whose ambitions aim at a direct grasp upon humanity, to artists, politicians, thinkers, reformers, or saints. A despicable emotional state this, against which solitude fortifies a superior character. And this is the type of monologue that, that is circulating around in the professor's mind, and uh, he, he seems to be one of the, the more interesting and uh, extreme examples of the anarchists that, that we find in this book. But what do you think, ultimately, of Conrad's portrayal of this, and, and, and of the, the people like Mikhail Bakunin and others that Conrad supposedly drew on for his understanding of anarchy at the time? Um, I don't believe it's a particularly accurate portrayal of um, most people in Western Europe and in Russia who would have called themselves anarchists at in that period. Most of them were a very peaceful bunch. Um, they just didn't believe in 
in centralized authority. They didn't believe, they didn't in fact believe in modernity. Um, and so there were some of them, a few of which will have been provoked and will have been manipulated into it, but some of which will have been more authentic, if you like, who did believe in the use of violence and did believe in the use of force to overthrow the centralized authority to, or if at least to embarrass it in order to create a kind of public uprising, a public, uh, if you embarrass it in front of the people, the people are more likely to reject it and overthrow it themselves, that sort of philosophy, the propaganda of the deed philosophy. Um, <clears throat> so I think, I think Conrad's portrayal of the anarchists, in particular that professor character who's walking around with his suicide bomb in his jacket the whole time, which you know, is, is bizarre in the extreme. Mm -hmm. I, I've never in any of my investigations into any of this found people who actually behaved like that. Um, they, they, those sorts of people only seem to exist in the fiction on Victorian anarchism. Um, that said, you did have some people who were genuinely violent and did genuinely believe that, um, not necessarily that they were part of a sort of Nietzschean vanguard, but that they, that it wasn't so much that they thought of themselves as being particularly special. It was more that they thought they had a right to recourse to violence simply because they were responding to violence they were responding to the violence of the oppression of the state and particularly in, in Tsarist Russia. Like I can see where they're coming from. I'm, I'm not justifying what they're doing. I'm not saying right. what they did. I'm not agreeing with it. Right, I, but I, you know, I can sympathize with it. I can see where it has a certain from. logic to it at any rate, but, mm. but uh, uh, let's stop there for a moment because you point out a fascinating part of all of this. When we talk about the propaganda of the deed and the attempt to embarrass the state by, by committing these atrocities that by which people will, will realize that the state isn't protecting them and, and serves no purpose and they'll overthrow them or, or however that logic works exactly. Isn't that, the exact mirror image and thus almost the exact same thing as what the agent provocateurs are attempting to do in, in making these atrocities happen so that they can provoke the outrage from the people that will justify this state's response. It's the exact same thing, but it is supposed to have these exactly opposite effects. Uh, the, the increasing of the authority of the state or the decreasing of the authority of the state or the legitimacy of the state. And that's exactly what, uh, what Conrad points to um, when, for example, Chief Inspector Heat um, is is uh, talking and he, he says the uh, the terrorist and the policeman both, he's thinking actually, he says uh, he thinks the terrorist and the policeman both come from the same basket. Revolution, legality, counter moves in the same game, forms of idleness at bottom identical. And isn't that the, the strange but, but fascinating part we always come back to with this in in the end of the day, the, if the provocateurs and the terrorists are, are basically doing the same thing, how does that not make them, at the end of the day, at the very least, morally identical? Um, I mean, you, that's that's extremely well observed. I'd not thought of that. You're absolutely right. Um, I mean, I, I, I thought of the point that you were ultimately getting to, but I'd not followed that logic through. That's that that's that's very interesting. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, and this is sort of the problem that we're we're faced with when when we're trying to make sense of all of this is that. To a certain extent, it doesn't really matter. Like, let's go back to our old friend Ali Muhammad. Does it really matter exactly who Ali Muhammad was loyal to at any specific moment, or at least thought he was loyal to at any specific moment? What kind of matters is, is 
what he really did. Um, and as a sort of terrorist trainer extraordinaire, he actually visited an awful lot of violence on quite a lot of people. Um, and therefore, it's in terms of uh, was he exactly following orders from the CIA or did he sort of double cross his CIA handlers at some point or all of that? To a certain extent, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter because he's a pretty morally terrible human being, albeit a biographically fascinating one. Um, and his handlers are morally terrible human beings. Exactly whether they had complete control over him kind of makes no difference. Um, so, again, if we it, let's go back to the Marshal Bordan thing. Whether that happened as a as a provocation or or as some kind of uh, result of collusion that went wrong, you know, some kind of blowback, or whether it was a, a you know just a, a complete downright accident, and no one really knows exactly what Bordan was doing there when he was carrying that bomb. Up to a point, it doesn't really matter. What matters is that in that world you do have this extreme crossover and, and interpenetration and collusion between sort of violent radicals on the one hand and the national security state on the other. And so, sort of as I was saying before, it's that dynamic and that trajectory of history that, that's really important here, regardless of the specific event, uh, facts of individual events. That's right. And, and, and look what happens when you set those things up in a dialectic, when you, all you have are the, the radical terrorists on the one extreme end and then the, the state or the government trying to clamp down on the other end, then what that leaves in the middle is just sort of the, the great unwashed masses that the professor so despises who, in, in his most uh, severe nightmares, might actually not even be afraid of him. I mean, that's his biggest fear. And, <laughs> yeah, and that kind of yeah. puts an interesting spin on all of this because it's really the dull complacency of the, 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 the locust-like masses that, that really are the deciding factor in all of this, um, not being particularly outraged either way and not being particularly interested in, in what's happening. And that, that leads to, um, to the very wry observation that I think is probably more true than almost anyone would want to admit that uh, that comes right at the beginning of chapter five, where um, the prof professor is thinking the way of even the most justifiable revolutions is prepared by personal impulses disguised into creeds, which is a very cynical take on on basically all of ideology and political motivation and all of this. But uh, but I think it's probably something quite profoundly psychologically interesting to explore there and that is exactly what we would expect, I think, from a literary modernist um, at the end of the day. And that, I, I suppose, probably brings the bile to your throat because I know that you so despise the modernists. <laughs> <laughs> I don't despise the modernists. <laughs> you hold a special hatred in your heart for all modernism, I know. But. <laughs> well, I am an anarchist. I mean, <laughs> Well, there you go. <laughs> is, is, is it not logical? You I mean, want to blow it, up the it, text. Well, I, well, to a certain extent, I do, and and uh, I do have a little bit of a problem with Conrad's portrayal of anarchism in this book. So, therefore, I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to be overly sympathetic towards his literary accomplishments in it. Well, I I agree. Be I I agree at, at any rate that it's. I think it is overly simplistic to think that there is this terrorist versus secret agent, and that is kind of the two ends that we have to put into dialectic, and and the the only other people in the middle are, are the, the sort of unknowing masses who just kind of go along with their lives as if there's not. I, I mean, I think that really creates a cynical world in which there is no room for actual political, mo politically motivated action that is actually meaningful. 
And uh, I think that's a great kind of excluded middle in the text. So I think politically, it's not a, a very astute thing. But I think um, literarily, I, I'm just absolutely flabbergasted by Conrad and his writing at times. They're so, it's so beautiful. And uh, considering it, he was writing in his fifth language, it's, uh, it's absolutely jaw-dropping to me. But, but there yeah, you go. Yeah, certainly that's impressive. Certainly you've got to give him credit there. And it is an, I mean, it is an extremely well-written book. Um, and it, it is a sort of literarily ambitious and, and complex and clever book. So it does have all of that going for it. I'm not in any way saying people shouldn't read it. In fact, they should have read it before they listened to this conversation, as you said. But, <laughs> <I hope so. laughs> but some of them won't have. So do go and read it um, and do sort of, you know, have a look at the, into the Marshall Bordan thing um, because it's a relatively easy case to find out about through search engines. So you can, you know, do have a look at that because it, it is ultimately important to understand the relationship between real life and fiction and in this particular meme as we said it's an extremely complicated relationship but it's a very interesting one and it is one that kind of uh it serves as a useful case study because it's one that's gone on over a over a century it's not just some kind of short-term thing that's difficult to put in context it's it's got a kind of rise and fall to it over a number of decades that just give you all some good context and some good contextualization for understanding the whole war on terror, terrorists versus security state supposed struggle that's going on right now. And you're dead right. It does have this kind of excluded middle. And that excluded middle uh, are all the people who are basically peaceful. You know what I mean? Exactly, exactly. It only has room for violence in ways of furthering political ideology. It doesn't have any room for, for that peaceful action. Well, I, I think we've probably plumbed the de depths of this uh, novel uh, in terms of this subject matter. For the literary geeks in the crowd like myself, I would just uh, point people to the fact that this t the, uh, the book is really, at the end of the day, I don't think it's about secret agents and anarchists and all of this. I think ultimately it's about about Victorian domestic life and the the space between the public perception of uh, of people and their their private thoughts and it's very much about how to about language and its inability to express those thoughts that's one of I think the key literary metaphors going on here with the secret agent and you see that uh, expressed time and time again throughout the book and um, and that's been that's not my own take on it, but it's been picked up by others. But I think it's it's probably the the real way to understand this as a literary tale. And um and bizarrely enough, you can't make this stuff up. I had obviously I had no idea about this when I when I first selected this book and decided to cover it now. But believe it or not, last weekend was the world premiere of the Secret Agent, the opera, which <laughs> <laughs> which just took place at the uh, Capital City Opera, um, Oglethorpe. Conant Center for the Performing Arts. Literally, they just had the world premiere of The Secret Agent, the opera, based on this novel. I can't even, for the life of me, imagine what no. that opera would be like. But if anyone out there actually got to see it, please let us know <laughs> what yeah, it was yeah, like. Yeah, please, please do. I'd, I'd be fascinated to hear what on earth that looks like. <laughs> or sounds like. I, um, or sounds like, yeah. yeah. Trying to imagine what that would be. All right. On that note, I think we'll wrap it up there. But you did talk about your spy culture blog uh and i'm not sure i've seen this website i i was under the impression you were not unveiling it to the public yet but is it officially launched can we talk about it yeah yeah we can we can talk about it quickly spyculture.com so let's just tell people what it is and when why, why you developed it it's just a sort of sister site to my terrorism one um that 
having spent several years researching the whole, well, many years researching the whole relationship between intelligence agencies and terrorists, um, and having made a reasonably good website, putting together most of my thoughts on that, as I started to develop these other lines of research about the intelligence agencies and the, and the culture producers, I thought this, I, there wasn't an obvious way to fold it into my existing site, so I just thought build a new one. Um, and so I have. And it's the same sort of thing. It's got articles, it's got reviews of different films and TV shows and books and things that relate to this topic. Uh, it has a whole bunch of profiles of specific people, you know, ex-spies who turned into authors, that kind of thing. Um, and an awful lot, as per usual, of the paper trail, an awful lot of PDF documents from all manner of different archives and places that I've got these things from so that I can... You know, I'm just trying to illustrate that if you really want to look into this kind of topic, you don't have to work on sort of rumours and vague associations between people. There is actually quite a lot of hard history on this, this issue of are the spooks seeding our culture with various ideas at various times? Um, <clears throat> the, an the answer is yes, and the answer is they're doing it in particular ways that we can actually track and we can actually gather proper information on so that's what the spy culture website is essentially trying to do it's just a resource for people essentially well it's a fascinating idea and i think a much needed one because as you say there's there i mean it is happening and we have to be aware of how how we are being programmed by this type of cultural influence so absolutely fascinating stuff spyculture.com investigating the terror.com um, two essential websites that will, of course, be linked up in the show notes for this episode, as, long, uh, as well as some of the links to the articles and other things we were talking about. And, of course, a link back to the book, just in case you really haven't read it yet. I really hope you will. Um, at any rate, I think we're going to leave it there. Tom Secker, always a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, James. It's been great talking to you. All right, friends, just before we go, uh, Tom has left us, but I'm just back after having recorded that conversation just with a couple of other notes of interest about the secret agent. Uh, first of all, I think you should all know that, uh, as Wikipedia even points out, apparently the secret agent was a big influence on Theodore Kaczynski, a.k.a. the Unabomber, who apparently not only kept a copy with him whilst living is, as a recluse in his hut in Montana, but he also seemed to feel that his family could not possibly understand him without reading Conrad. So make of that what you will. Also, I wanted to throw in uh, one of the email responses that we received from last month's FLNWO episode on Syriana. And this time uh, Lowell uh, wrote in to say that uh, he believes that the true bottom line of the film uh, and I'm sure not intentional message of the film is best summed up in the scene where CIA agent Bob Barnes is attempting to have a normal lunch with his son Robbie who clarifies everything when he states in disgust that my parents are professional liars. This to me is the essence of the problem portrayed in the film. The employers lie to their workers, the teachers lie to their students, the attorneys lie to their clients, and the clients lie to their shareholders. The government and the oil companies lie to each other. Bob Bear will say whatever gets him the highest exposure and paycheck, and the CIA lies to everybody. No wonder the film offers no viable solutions. No one in this business can trust or be honest with anyone. It was, is, and always will be the truth that sets us free. Once again, that's from Lowell, who wrote in about last month's conversation about Syriana, and I think he's exactly right with that. And that does actually make sense of that random scene of the lunch with Robbie, which does not seem to fit into the movie in any way, shape, or form, has nothing to do with the rest of the plot. 
but is an interesting scene and this really does get to the bottom of the what's really behind the uh, the entire impetus of the intelligence agencies generally they are professional liars so that was well observed thank you for that lowell if you have any email comments out there that you'd like to send in about the secret agent i'll be happy to read them on air after our next conversation next month again on the third uh, monday of april and that conversation is going to be about the movie Soylent Green. The link will be in the show notes. So thank you once again for listening. Look forward to talking to you again real soon. The Corbett Report is brought to you by you. Your support makes The Corbett Report possible. Sign up for the subscriber newsletter or purchase a DVD at corbettreport.com support.